This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, and welcome to Computing Primetime, a conversation on the role of computing in the wider world. I'm Ryan Kastner, a professor of computer science and engineering at UC San Diego. And I'm Albert Lin, a research scientist at the Qualcomm Institute and an emerging explorer of the National Geographic Society. In this program, we're going to explore computing and technology for exploration. Just as computer science is reshaping disciplines such as biology, it's also fundamentally changing the field of exploration and cultural heritage. There are numerous projects underway at UC San Diego in places as far-flung as Guatemala, Mongolia, Jordan, and Italy. But we'll get to that in a moment. But first, Albert and I are co-directors of a student program called Engineers for Exploration. And that's probably a good place to start the conversation. Albert, you were an engineer by training, yet you got into exploration somewhat recently. So can you tell us a little bit about how you, how you got into that exploration coming from the background of engineering? I'm just a crazy person, and my PhD advisor was equally crazy and always going out into wild, far-flung places. Uh, you know, that had a big influence on me. But I did actually all of my degrees in engineering here at UC San Diego. Uh, you know, I was an undergrad here, I did my master's here, I did my PhD here, all in the fields of mechanical, aerospace, material science, and there's really cool stuff happening on campus all the time, right? And I remember feeling kind of trapped, you know, feeling like, okay, well, what am I going to do next? And then I heard this talk by this guy who was uh, invited to speak at the Qualcomm Institute, which at that time was called Cali D2. His name was Maurizio Saracini, and he was using his degrees and his training in bioengineering to look for this lost painting between two walls that he believed were in the Hall of 500, the Piazza Vecchio. This is the, the chamber that locks in Leonardo da Vinci's all-time masterpiece. I thought, oh my God, that's exactly the kind of thing I want to spend my time doing. At the same time, my parents and grandparents had you know, always told me to go back to understand my own culture. And when I finished my PhD, I spent a lot of time in Asia, and I came back to the U.S. with this strong feeling that I could take that idea of engineering and combine it with my desire to explore the world and just merge it together. But that's nothing new, you know? I mean, if you think about it, engineers have been doing this forever. Do you know who founded the National Geographic Society? Alexander Graham Bell. That's right, yeah. yeah. So the inventor of the telephone uh, actually is one of the founders of the National Geographic Society. An engineer, right? I mean, you're an engineer. You've, you've been in exploration for a long time as well, right? I mean, you've done incredible things with computing. What got you into it? Before I came to San Diego, uh, UC San Diego, I was a professor at, up at Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara. And uh, if you've been to Santa Barbara, the campus, it's right, right on the ocean, right? So what I would do to sort of clear my mind when I, when I started uh, as a young professor, you know, with a lot of stress to, to try to get tenure, is I would just walk down on the beach, right? And uh, the buildings right on the cliffs of the beach are the most amazing buildings, right? Because you just have this office with an ocean view. Wait a minute, so you're telling me that to work hard, you just strolled along the beach? Absolutely. <laughs> like you have to do that, right? You know, it's important to clear your I mind, right? All right, yeah. yeah. yeah it's important okay. to clear your mind. Amazing that. things came to me. So, so I went down there and I said, you know, first off, I need to get an office mm-hmm. on the ocean with an ocean view. So then I, I, I figured out, how can I do that, right? Second off, so most of the, the offices down there were marine science and ecological offices, right? So mm-hmm. I said, why well, I need to approach these people and try to figure out how, I, how can I get involved with them, right? Because, you know, the way I see it, computing and engineering, we've come a, a long way, yeah. and things are advancing at a tremendous pace, right? So if you look at the past 50 years in computing, we've gone from, you know, computers the size of this room to 
to things that are now you know even more powerful just sitting in, in our pocket or on our watch yeah. right so all that fundamental stuff is is there it's it's already to be used so how do we actually use that in for biology for ecology for exploration right mm-hmm. so i met up with some ecologists biologists marine biologists in particular and i said you know how can i get involved with you well we really want to do some exploration of the ocean right so the ocean is a vastly underexplored place. We know more about the surface of Mars, the surface of the moon, than we do about the ocean floor, right? So they were very forward-looking people. They have this um, uh, research center. Actually, it's a UC research center in, in French Polynesia. So it's a terrible, yeah, terrible place to visit, right? And terrible place to do research. Yeah. So I said, well, maybe I'm not going to get an office as a young professor, an <laughs> <laughs> uh, ocean view office, right? But maybe I can go to French, French Polynesia, to this island of Morea, and take some of the technology that is in computing and actually put it underwater and help them discover things about coral reefs. Yeah. The state of coral reefs, sadly, they're, you know, they're dying at a tremendous rate. So how can we use some of the technology to to, to dis- discover how, how they're, they're dying and how can we regenerate them, right? How can we make mm-hmm. them regrow? So one of the biggest things that they had at that point was the, the lack of ability to talk to the sensors. They would take disk, probably floppy disk, and they would literally walk it to someone. So they called it a sneaker net, right? Mm. And so they took this term off of sneaker net, you know, back 30 years ago before internet was widespread. And they said, you know, really what we're doing in the underwater world is like that. And they called it flipper net, so what they do is they, they, put, they, put, they put sensors down underwater, right? They leave the sensors in the ocean for a year, and they come back and grab them, right? Mm-hmm. And then they grab the data off, and then they you know, put it on the Internet, and they share it. But bad things can happen, right? Your sensor could just crap out, right? Mm-hmm. And then you, you know. So you have, and you have, you have no, status. Uh, no data for a year. the entire year. Yep. And you're basically going to have to take long walks on the beach. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, right. terrible. Right? Yes, right. right. And, uh, and or spend another year as a PhD student, right? Which is which not the could, worst thing. It's not the either, worst thing, but, you know, you know it's, it's actually, actually not the best thing. Right? Honestly, it's probably the best experience. And actually, it, it is a pretty, yeah. pretty good life. You know, I often want to go back to my PhD years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's why, you know, I think in terms of my motivation for, for the engineers <laughs> for exploration is <laughs> to be closer to the students. Be closer again, to the right? students, yeah. right? Be closer to the undergrads, yeah, right? Yeah. Because the undergrads have this amazing yeah. energy. Right, and so yeah. I, I joke, but it's like we can live in Neverland, right? We can we can mm. live in this place where where the students are just constantly staying young, and we can just suck their energy and try to be. So, young. <laughs> you know, but for me, I mean, the the experience as an undergrad here was um, was remarkable. You know, I feel like UCSD is one of those places where you can dream up pretty much anything uh, and make it happen, only if you decide to. If you don't, then you know you're, you're not going to do anything, right? Yep. Um, but I also felt like. I wanted to get more, you know, in general, I wanted to do more than what I was just doing in my classes, right? I mean, the classes were great, but I wanted to do more. So, you know, what we're doing with the Engineers for Exploration program, in my mind, almost originally was in part as a, almost like a, a reflection of what I wanted when I was an undergrad, but also it was because I just needed people that were innovative to try to help build stuff that we were going to use in the field, right? right. I mean, if you remember... Yeah, um, going back to the, this is six years ago, right? Mm-hmm. The start of the program, you know, it was... It was maybe, I, want, I want to hear your side of the story first, and I'll tell my side of the you story t- you first. Go, you go first. Okay, so this crazy guy, you know, Albert Lin comes, <laughs> comes, <laughs> comes to me and says, you know, 
I want to build some technology to take with me to Mongolia to find this tomb of Genghis Khan, right? <laughs> that, that, I mean, that was, that's the way I saw it, right? You know, and and yeah. how can we do that? And, and I specifically remember saying, you know, do you think we can get students excited about this? Like, do you think that's, that's you know, students will be, that'll be something that's important to the students? I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, this is amazing. Let's, let's do this. Let's absolutely do this. Right? Yeah. I remember uh, feeling pretty desperate, <laughs> you know, because, uh, you know, fresh out with a PhD, no job trying to build this project on fumes of funding uh, and then you know walking into your lab and seeing a robotic submarine uh, built by students um, seeing other things that were happening from an embedded circuit standpoint uh, you know really cool really cool toys and what I wanted to do was take that approach to land so you know I was up in these mountains of Mongolia I had satellite imagery like big vast quantities of satellite imagery and you know actually with some incredible students here came up with ways to crowdsource the analytics of that and then we we had places we wanted to go but we knew we wanted to look uh you know at this area that we couldn't dig up so we had to see from above and that guy Maurizio had talked about using thermal imaging to look at the changes in the soil uh, from day to night in terms of the thermal conductivity. And that way you could see a void. And I thought, okay, that's totally how we're going to do it. But at the time, a drone, an aerial UAV, which now you can buy for a couple hundred bucks, six years ago, the, the cheapest one was $20,000. Yes. I mean, remember? And, I, and we were talking about that. It's like, well, can we... Can we build one, yeah? Can right. we just get some students to do this? Right. Can we, like, right. you know, can exactly. they build this thing? Yeah. Uh, and then... And then Obviously, some, somebody needs to fly it. So, can we get permission to to take some students out to this incredibly dangerous, uninhabited, unexplored region? And what would be the liability of that? that, that yeah, was no, exactly. You know, it's actually an amazing point that you just brought up. Is you know, going six years ago from uh, an, a copter that was twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars to now. You know, just six yep. years later, it's hundred dollars, or you can buy even small ones that are like ten dollars. They're toys yep. now, literally toys. toys. So the the rate of of ex- explosion of of the computing and just yeah. also just kind of this maker space and mm-hmm. you know what can I do and make it more, build it cheaper, um, has really driven I think computer science exploration and and just you know computing in, in the in the larger world. Yeah. You know, I re- I also remember uh and and you spent some significant time there afterwards as well, but when we first started the program, uh you know, it was funded by National Geographic, right? And I'd gotten a small grant. But what was cool was that they have a engineering lab in the society, right? Where people are just tinkering and building robots to go and do the impossible, yeah. right? They've actually incorporated as you know, a lot of the technology that we were innovating right here, and we have innovated and continue to innovate, you know? I mean, the fact that some of our students from our program now actually work in that lab and get deployed all over the world right. is uh, something that makes me think, well, maybe I should become a student in my own program. It, yeah, go work <laughs> you know, at National go, Geographic, yeah, right? It's an amazing sounds, place. You know, sounds I was, awesome. You know, through this, the connections through this program, I, I got to spend a few months there about two years ago working yeah. on the, the Critter Cam, yeah. right? So this is... Uh, uh, an amazing device that they put on hundreds of different types of animals. It's just a camera, right? And, and again, this points to the to the fact that you know when they started the critter cam, probably in the late '90s, it was this rather large thing, and now it's just minuscule. How, right? how big is it now? Well, it depends on the animal, and you know, it's a lot about battery power mm-hmm. and you know how long they want they want it to, right. to to stay alive. You brought up something that that happens in almost all our projects. It's student 
led and focused, but really the projects are beyond just a student experience. These are real world challenges, right? I mean, we've had students come with us to expeditions. Like for example, we were just in Guatemala last year on two, two expeditions where we had students using all sorts of gear, but they have to think about, you know, when, when innovating, they have to think about battery power, right? They have to think about connectivity, data analytics afterwards, stability, geopositioning, like all this stuff that goes into each one of these platforms. So when you look at actually our student base, there, it's, a, it's, it's sort of like a jack-of-all-trades approach where you have to know a little bit of everything to put it together, right? Yeah, and you, and you get that experience, again, you know, looking back to what could have I done as an undergrad, right? You mm-hmm. get that experience, I think, of, of taking what you learn in your classes mm-hmm. but going just so far beyond that, right? Mm-hmm. Saying, like, you know, I'm not going to learn how to make a, a flying vehicle. I'm not going to learn how to do that in any of my classes. I'm going to learn the basics of that, but then I have to go out and try to figure out how to take that knowledge and, and use it. And it's not just computer science. It's, you know, it's, it's mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, computer engineering, mm-hmm. Aerospace engineering, so it really yeah. involves this collaborative uh, mishmash of students and, and disciplines across engineering. And you and, and you got to be in the physical as well. I mean, you got to yeah. be an athlete in some ways, right? Like I, I actually remember um, in grad school, most of my friends that were at ECE or CSE or I don't know, they, there was just a huge community of rock climbers in mm-hmm. in this discipline for some reason, right? Yeah. And so I was really into climbing, uh, and we took a lot of that you know, physical adventurous spirit and brought it into the field. And actually, you know, in, I think it was 2009 or 2010, our project, a bunch of computer science PhDs or almost PhDs, and, you know, I'm a mechanical engineer. We were National Geographic's reader, Adventure Magazine's Reader's Choice Adventurers of the Year, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, Adventurers of the Year being engineers. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think, you know, that's just the beginning, Right. Um, I think about now the frontier of beyond just the physical and, and looking at what we can see now of our planet. And and I think we're at the very tip, the very beginning of an entirely new world of data-driven exploration. You know, I mean, you look at, for example, the fact that I just got this email today saying that we're going to be able to tap into, at UCSD, have this unbelievable potential to look at all of the satellite imagery that's being produced by this constellation of six satellites from the leading satellite imaging company in the world, Digital Globe. Uh, and, you know, that's 500 million square kilometers of imagery that's each pixel is about the size of this table, mm-hmm. right? Now, if our students can do anything, they can innovate, right? And so what if we start thinking about how do you look at that data at huge scales? You know, how do you compute insight out of that imagery? The things that we can see you know, you can't get to. Like, you, you, we could go and explore the Amazon and look at the indigenous communities that, that have never been contacted before from space, mm-hmm. you know, and understand how they're moving and how they're interacting, where the conflict zones are. I mean, the potential is endless. So it's, you know, I think it's not just robotics that, that is impacting exploration, but, you know, everything from data science to analytics to, to, to you know, machine learning to crowdsourcing. I mean, it's just the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that another big trend that I've you've seen in, in computing, especially recently, is that, you know, we have these four billion transistor mega processors just mm-hmm. sitting in our pocket and they're just always collecting data, right? People are always taking pictures, videos, putting it on, on the internet. You know, there's there's the ability now with just these amazing satellites to get this super accurate resolutions of all around the world, you know, multiple times a day. Um, but we have so much data, right? Yeah. So how do you deal with that, right? That's, that's a huge problem. It's, it's like we have the compute power. 
we have these massive farms that Google runs and Microsoft runs, Amazon runs. Um, we have all this data stored somewhere. You know, probably 99.99% of it is just useless stuff, pictures of cats on the Internet, right? Yeah. You know, useless stuff. But you have all this data, right? And there's, there is some very, very useful data in that point zero 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 one percent And, and how, do you, you know, how do you get out of it, right? And you did this. You did this in, you know, many years ago in looking for the, to- the tomb in, in Mongolia, the tomb of Genghis yeah. Khan. So you know, can you maybe explain a bit about well, how you I- took this vast amount of data and, and tried to yeah. figure out you know, what is interesting in this data? Yeah, well, yeah, so, okay, so I was at Kalaji 2, and I told you about the idea that, you know, we're, we're trying to look for Genghis Khan's tomb using satellite imagery to begin with to locate areas of interest in this massive unexplored region. There was actually a, an area north of uh, the capital of Mongolia, right on the border of Siberia, that was around 6,000 square kilometers in size and was forbidden to go to by anybody outside of the imperial family for 800 years, okay, by decree of Genghis Khan himself. So untouched, right? Uh, except for these shamans that could go and pay worship to the sites where the tomb should be. So we thought, okay, let's look for satellite imagery. Let's look for anomalies, you know, anything that's on the ground. But we couldn't get through all of it uh, in a single lifetime, really, because each pixel was, you know, we had to look at every single one, right? So we thought, can we use some computer vision algorithms? Uh, I was really lucky because at QI, you know, in college too, there is students from all different disciplines. So one of my friends, Shai Harnoy, he was, um, you know, uh, I think a CSE major in image processing. We tried to do some work there and see what we could find. We tried to do some um, machine learning with Kosistama Tio, another PhD student in, in QI. And then Luke Barrington, who was doing his PhD with, uh, with Gert Lankrete, you know Gert, Professor yes, Gert Lankrete? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They were doing this really cool project on getting people to tag uh, music with games, yeah. you know, and to put labels on music. And, you know, Gert's uh, another one of the Explorer groups. You know, he's really one of these guys who just is out there pushing the limits. And I talked to Gert and Luke about my problem. And, you know, right away we thought, well, how do we tap the crowd to do the analytics, right? Mm-hmm. So we sliced up the imagery and came up with this process to have people looking at little bits of data and in parallel they would find places of agreement and that would lead us towards a mathematical approach to identifying where the hottest spots were. And then we'd go out on horseback. Well, it worked so well that Nat Geo put it on their front page. It got millions of hits. We found 55 tombs, one of which we think is actually incredibly compelling. Possibly, I can't say much more than that. But then the whole process was so successful that we launched a company called Tomnod. I don't know if you, did you see that Malaysia airline uh, first plane uh, that went missing? And there was this big crowdsourced search with 8 million people. Mm -hmm. And we sold that company, uh, you know, and to Digital Globe, who's the satellite imagery provider, only two years after we started. Right. You know, And, uh, and the fact that, you know, we could go from just a concept to an to a company to an acquisition to a global impact of yep. eight million people sure. within a couple of you know years yep. uh, is an example of what you can do as a student thinking about computing and exploration. Yeah, no, I think that all kind of pull, pulls back to the, to the point I was I was making earlier about how things move so quickly, right? Yep. And you, if you can get the right problem, you can jump on them, and you can be passionate about, it, and you can find the right people, right? So it's it's usually not like. Uh, you know the person that's right next to you, but it's a it's a person that's across you know the hall or across campus that you can talk to and say, hey, I have this amazing problem, and they have a lot of solutions, mm-hmm. right? And they can come and say, you know, this is this is Gert for you, I think, right? Yeah. So you know, you guys were not too far apart, but you know, yeah. you have to find that kind of person, and, and you say, 
I have all this data I'm looking for weird stuff in it. And he's like, well, I'm doing all this, this, I have all this music data and I'm looking for, you know, something similar to exactly. what you're doing. But it's not the same. It's not obvious to him. It's not obvious to you. But when you come together in a collaborative way, then it, it makes a whole lot, a lot more sense. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you know, talking about the Qualcomm Institute, Cal-IT, that's a, a huge aspect of that, right, yeah. is that you have all of these people from all over campus sitting there, and, and they're not across campus now, right? They're, right. they're right next to you. They're across the hall from you, and, yeah. and then it creates this amazing collaborative experience that you can take a music person and an engineer and electrical engineer and a material, yeah. you know, materials engineer, mechanical engineer, um, archaeologist, mm-hmm. and so on. I mean, you know, one of the, bringing that up, one of the things that we have that's a really big resource for the program, for the E4E program, is one of our other co-directors, Kurt Trugers, is you know the director of this crazy little lab where you can just tinker. Yeah, going know? back to the, sort of the whole makers movement, which is you know it's like almost like the as computing has expanded, so has mechanical engineering expanded in some sense. So you know I can I can relatively easily just make whatever I want, drop a three D crazy design of, and then give the file to this little printer that spews ink, you know, and creates a 3D printed printed object of, of, of whatever it is that you need, right? And so that, that enables you not to have these huge machines um, mm-hmm. that were traditionally operated by people with, you know, missing one or two fingers, right? <laughs> because, it's, you know, they're very... I miss that, you know, yeah. come on, yeah, you need those guys. You have all your fingers there, yeah. so you're all right. But there's also some really... But it's much easier know. now, right? It's much easier to do that. And that's yeah, another huge innovation, stuff, right? right? I think there's a place for both, right? Yeah. I mean, you, there's really a place for both because if you, if you look at some of the stuff that we build, it's still that, you know, hammer, lose your fingers sort definitely, of thing, Definitely, right? definitely, yeah. Uh, but and it's still in that lab. That lab also has sure. you know, they, uh, we have CNC all that access and everything to that, like that. Mm-hmm. But but you know, Kurt uh, is an example of a, a of a another one of us who loves to build and tinker and then and then go into the field. So right. you know, I've felt strongly over the years that engineers should not think of themselves as cogs in a wheel to then deliver something for somebody else to deploy. We are the ones who know what to do with these things and how to fix them because yeah. field work is just. Unpredictable. Everything breaks. Yeah. So you got to be there right, to right. actually fix it with duct tape or twine or whatever. And right. You, you have no idea what it is until you get to the field. So you know, going back to the the Guatemala trip, like yeah. that first trip that you know that two day crazy jaunt into the jungle, <laughs> oh, right? You know, it's like we had no idea what to expect, right? So you know, my father, bless his heart, he he always thinks I go to crazy places like Europe. You know, he's oh, like, God, you're yeah. going to uh, Switzerland. You know, Ryan, you got to be careful, <laughs> right? And I the told cheese my, there is really <laughs> yeah, really bad for you. Yeah, yeah. you know, the chocolate, right? oh, it's going to yeah. kill you, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Don't do that. And I, yeah, I, I, I reluctantly told him, like, hey, Dad, you know, I'm going to, to Guatemala. And he's like, you know, where's that? He's <laughs> 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 like, oh, you know, well, it gets better, Dad. You know, it's, uh, I'm going into the middle of this jungle. War-torn you know? jungle, yeah. Yeah, you know, where exactly, you know, there's, uh, there's Maya ruins, but, you know, there's, I didn't tell him any of this, and hopefully he doesn't watch this, right? Yeah. But, um, you know, all this sort of activity of, of violence, drug violence, and all this kind of stuff, and... Uh, you know, we're going to go there, uprisings. and it's going to, you know, it's, well, I didn't even know at the time, but, you know, it took us, what, five hours to get in through on more the than roads? That. Yeah. More than that. I thought and it took us, like, uh, almost a full day of pushing those Land Rover Defenders. I mean, these, like, classic mm. Land Rover Defenders. Yeah, like through. tanks almost, yeah. right? You know, I actually <laughs> felt like we were on the Indiana Jones ride. Yeah, I know, exactly. Because, yes, it, yeah. The, yep. because it was so muddy that the truck would just be, like, <laughs> sliding yep. around yep. everywhere. And then... Watching our students who were, I mean, green from getting off that plane, um, like literally green in the yeah. face. Well, I was too, but you know. Yeah. I, <laughs> oh, yeah. That crazy plane we had to take from the Capitol yeah, with, right. with the yeah. bars on the windows. And, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and then jump out, you know, they've got these big copters, these big robotic drones sitting on their lap. 
because they don't want to break it down. And the uh, LiDAR, the $30,000 LiDAR. The $30,000 laser scanner, you know, <laughs> huddled around them to make sure it keeps safe. And yeah. then they had to carefully put it down, get behind this truck, and just push it through yeah. the mud for, yeah. you know, I don't know, like five, six hours. It was yeah. only like, you know, 10 miles or something yeah. we went, and it took yeah. us that long to, to push these monster tank of a, a yeah. vehicle through this. But I like when Tom Garrison, our collaborator, the archaeologist, turned to everybody and said, well, you know, Here's your anti-venom, but it's really that you got a 50-50 shot yeah. if, if the snake gets that's you. And then, and then he points to the to the snake skin that's hanging like <laughs> right on the outside yeah. of the temple. Yeah. And uh, and none of our students were phased at all whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. No, that was you know bringing back to you know Tom had to do this briefing because the UCSD wanted us to, to have this briefing. It was required to brief the students. He was like. Everyone here is the anti-ventum, you know, and, and, and I think someone asked, you know, you know, what do we do if we get bit by a snake? And he just looks at you and, you know, Tom is just so stoic and he's like, don't get bit by a snake. Yeah. <laughs> That's terrible. Didn't you see a snake in, the, in one of the... Yeah, trips? on the second trip. Uh, so, you know, we were, you know, maybe to give a kind of step back a little bit, but, you know, that first trip was just this crazy, you know, yeah. fly down to Guatemala to get on this little puddle jumper to, to the Ten region, yeah. take these monster trucks, you know, literally monster trucks into the middle of this bio, biosphere into the, the, the site, El Zotes, which is a, you know, they thought was a, a major site next to, uh, to Tikal, which most people know where what does El Zotes mean Zotes is bats right it's the Maya word for bats Mm -hmm. right and um, you know going in and uh, doing all that craziness and we just took a bunch of stuff right we had no idea what to expect right I I didn't even think that it would take this long we took all this technology in. We were going to take a freaking balloon, right? And, yeah, and that, that was, the, was going to be the worst a, a idea. A big uh, helium, helium balloon, balloon, a massive helium balloon. Yeah. That, by the way, we've used for um, for looking for like all sorts of things, like whales uh, in, yeah. in the Pacific. Uh, we used you know, it in Jordan, an archaeological with, site with, with Tom, Tom Levy. Levy. Yeah. Uh-huh. So we were like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take the balloon, yeah. right? And we were looking to get helium in there, which is going to be a big disaster. And, and luckily, we couldn't get helium in there because we oh, get yeah. there. And we look up, and it's just jungle, right? We're they like, were going to hire no way. some guy to drive a helium tank from Belize yeah, all the way right, to Guatemala right. for us. Yeah, but, yeah. And yeah. we would have gotten there, and we would have just been like, nope, we yeah. can't use the balloon. But we took the copters, we took the LIDAR, and, you know, we yeah. did all of this different kind of stuff, and we tried to figure out, you know, what was, what was useful, right? Yeah. You know, just spend, you know, 14-hour days just around the site, you know, flying and... Uh, and doing ladder scans. I remember there was an issue when we were on top of one of the big temples, and they started flying, you know, a couple of the students, Dom and Eric, they started flying one of these copters up to do some mapping and test this drone for, obviously, the project that we're building now to put a laser on the drone to map the jungle. But for some reason, the the location on Earth wasn't correct based on our GPS and recalibration or whatever. So they send up this drone and put it into its flight path and it just goes off in the wrong direction, yeah, you know, right, like yeah. for for a long ways until mm-hmm. we can't even hear it before, right? Yeah. And then I turn to Dom and I said, Dom, go back to manual controls. Yeah. So he gets back to manual controls. And you had a radio down. Yeah, in the we were doing lighter scans right? of some of the some of the stella, some of the the, wood, the stone carvings that they put outside of the temple. So we were we were I was over there with Perry, and uh, we had radios so that we could talk to each other. But. And we couldn't see it anymore. So yeah, I, I remember calling down to you. No, no, no. I, I was like, oh, I see the copter. It's flying over, flying over us right now. 
<laughs> and you were flying it off the top of the one of the temples, which was which was pretty cool, right? You and know? pretty terrifying too, because yeah. those temples are are high up in the they're, yeah, they're higher, they're above the canopy, yeah. right? So that's and why we chose and you're to do that. Surrounded by those howler monkeys, howler monkeys yeah. so they're screaming at you right. uh, while you're trying to do this stuff with your computer and you know see what this, where the copter is, yeah. and communicate with you guys to try to triangulate this piece of gear. Yeah. Yeah, man, that was so much fun. Yeah, it was a good time. I see. I think that's the essence of uh, the engineering experience that I imagined when I was a kid, thinking about what it would be like to be an inventor. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you think about what engineering is; it's an incredibly romantic experience of creativity. You just come up with something and you make it work, and then you apply it to, to really cool stuff. Yeah, it's a great time to be an engineer and a computer scientist. I guess we have to leave the conversation there. You know, thanks for watching this edition of Computing Primetime. I'm Albert Lin. And I'm Ryan Kastner. Thanks for watching, and be sure to follow us online at csc.ucsd.edu and e4e.ucsd.edu if you're interested in learning more about our Engineers for Exploration program. Join us next time. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.